This episode contains stories about prison violence, death, suicide, self-harm, and abuse. Please be mindful when you choose to listen. You're listening to Unlawful Killing, Death, Resistance, and the Fight for Justice. A podcast by Inquest, the only charity fighting alongside families bereaved by deaths involving the state, including police, prison, and mental health services. I'm Lee Lawrence, advocate and son of Cherry Gross, who was shot by the Metropolitan Police, which sparked the 1985 Brixton uprisings. And I'm Lucy Brisbane from Inquest. In this series, we're diving into our 40-year history of campaigning, We'll be doing this through conversations with those at the centre of these stories. Episode 4, Prisons, Part 2. Because it doesn't matter how much campaigning I do and what I do, he's not coming back. And that's what I try to point out when I do all of these things. I want to ensure that, you know, somebody else doesn't lose their lives the way Liridan did and that another family isn't destroyed like ours because it keeps happening. Last episode, we looked at the deaths of children in prison and how through family-led campaigning, vital changes mean that no child under 18 has died in prison since 2016. But every year, Hundreds of people continue to die in adult prisons across the country, hidden from view and away from their families and friends. So we spoke to Dita Saliuka, whose brother Liridan died in Belmar's prison, about her experiences about campaigning for justice and systemic change. I'm Dita Saliuka. I campaigned for prison reform after losing my brother Liridan in prison. Liridan was on remand at HMP Belmarsh for five and a half months awaiting trial under the Joint Enterprise Doctrine for a murder that somebody else committed. At the time of being on remand, he had also had a disability because he'd been in a serious car accident where he sustained life-changing injuries. And he just wanted to clear his name. But unfortunately, you know, those uh, HMP Belmarsh that had a duty of care massively let him down, refused to accept that somebody like him as they described, somebody with a big character, somebody that, you know, went to the gym and had upper body strength, didn't look disabled, could not be disabled. So, yeah, after a lot of issues at HMB Belmarsh, he, he died. And nearly three years later, an inquest concluded that he died by suicide. And it was, you know, to do with disability discrimination by HMP Belmarsh staff, dismissive behaviour, ill treatment by them, significant and multiple failures by them... All of these which contributed to the decline in his mental health, which led to his death. Dita, thank you for sharing that. What did you know about prison before your brother ended up in prison? I wouldn't say I was naive. I was always, you know, aware of what was going on in the world and what was going on in the UK across lots of different areas and not just prisons. I didn't realise, though, that a place like H&P Belmarsh would be run 
in such a chaotic way with quite uncaring, heartless staff, be it prison officers, being doctors, being nurses, being so-called mental health professionals who seem to lack compassion, let alone anything else. You know, being told that my brother was restrained by nine prison officers for asking not to be moved from his disabled cell and he had a disability and they fully well know it. They had all his medical notes, all his multiple, multiple, many, many surgeries that he had across his whole body, his ankle, his femur, his back, his face. They knew all of this to treat him the way they did because somebody like him didn't look disabled in their view. And then to be told that there's no CCTV cameras of the day he died where he was being restrained. I don't understand it, you know, how can a prison be run like that? And then on top of it being run unsafely by apparently CCTV cameras being inoperable for 12 years and they call it high security prison. So yeah, I think I knew a little bit, but nowhere near to what I know now because of what happened to Liridan and what I continue to learn. Even now, years later, you know, nothing has really changed be it Belmarsh or any of the other prisons in the UK. All I see is politicians talking about how people are being treated in prisons in other countries, yet they don't do anything about the prisons in the UK. And if anything, you could argue that they're making things worse, the current politicians. Yes, they're making things worse. They think their answer to it always build more prisons. That's not the answer. It's been proven by Norway. You know, the more people in prison, the higher the reoffending rate anyway. So... It has been proven. So why would that be your answer? That's not sorting any problems. Tita, you obviously became a campaigner after Liridan died, but actually, while he was in prison, you came together with another campaign group that was specifically around the sentence that you mentioned that Liridan was being charged with the joint enterprise doctrine. So my understanding is that joint enterprise is when somebody is charged alongside others for a crime that they didn't directly commit or weren't the main perpetrator. Can you tell us a little bit about Joint Enterprise and about the Jengba campaign? So I started getting involved with Jengba, which is Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association, while Lewiden was in prison because I wanted to understand what this was. I was hearing a lot of bad stories, to be honest. You know, most of the people in this campaign group are convicted. Lewiden was on remand. And I just learned about how they twist things in court because they try and say that you either assisted or encouraged. And if you did assist or encourage, then you'd be found guilty and receive the same sentence as the perpetrator who did commit the crime. Some people think that you can only be charged under the joint enterprise doctrine with the other person that did it or the others. It was different in Liridan's case. Liridan was charged himself, nobody else, because they couldn't actually find the person who did it. See, it was kind of like a case of Liridan was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think what a lot of people wouldn't actually believe is that then you can be actually sent to prison on remand, which is when you haven't been actually found guilty of anything. It's before the trial. So... That is shocking in and of itself. And then for that to continue in the prison to have such a negative impact on his mental health while he was sort of waiting to stand trial, I think a lot of people would be really shocked. And that's something that you've spoken out about as a campaigner as a whole. You know, it was bad enough of being accused of crime you didn't commit and then to be held under those conditions on top of that to have a disability had a massive, massive impact on him. You know, at the end of the day, yes, he was a strong character. He looked strong, but he was human. 
And I think sometimes people just like to judge people based on how they look. So obviously as Liberdin's sister, you have been an advocate for him in life and also in death. And I think that really links with your experience, Lee, with your mum. You kind of campaigned and you took on this role as campaigner and carer. I don't know if you wanted to reflect on that kind of crossover. Well, there's two things I wanted to reflect on. One is around disability. My mum was left disabled as a result of being shot by the Metropolitan Police. And listening to you and hearing that his disability wasn't taken seriously. I mean, even down to the fact that he wasn't granted bail being put in a situation like that. And there's a perception of who you are. And when you're trying to say, you know, as much as I've learned to cope with my disability, well, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I'm trying to let you know that you know, I have this and it, it does affect me in this way. And to feel that all that time he was being ignored. So I was listening to you thinking, you know, how horrible that must have been for him being in that position in the first place. And then around the campaigning and what you have to do to have a voice for that person who unfortunately didn't have their voice heard at the time. How did you manage to, you know, find the strength and the courage to do that? And what made you decide that it was going to be you out of everyone else in your family? I think for me, it wasn't really a thing of who will do this. I think I'm, I've always been the one in the family that picks things up and does things. I wouldn't say that I was just helping Lyrodon while he was in prison. I cared for him. I slept on the mattress on the floor and I cared for him when, you know, he was bedbound for three months. I was always there for him. We were always really close. You know, we were always there for each other. I think for me, I've always been the one that sorts, you know, sorts things out. But, you know, when Lyrodon died, it was the first time in my life where it was something I would, I, I will never be able to sort it out because it doesn't matter how much campaigning I do and what I do, he's not coming back. And that's what I try to point out when I do all of these things. I want to ensure that somebody else doesn't lose their lives the way Lyrodon did and that another family isn't destroyed like ours because it keeps happening. I think I just did it because one of the things that hurts me the most is that during that time, nobody was listening to him. He was talking because sometimes they say that, you know, when somebody's struggling, they don't speak. He did. He asked them for help, but he was denied that help. So for me, it's about making sure that his voice is heard. And that was what was really, really important at the inquest. Because I know that the inquest doesn't bring my brother back, but it's to acknowledge what happened to him and what happened was wrong. And that's exactly what the jury found. And that means a lot to me that his voice has been heard. And in the meantime, since that, I just don't want this to happen to anyone else. That's all I'm asking. I don't know why it's so difficult to ask for people to be cared for, to be treated as humans, for compassion, for healthcare. I don't know why it's difficult to ask to stop people from dying where, you know, these are unnatural deaths. These are preventable deaths. And I think that's quite key there, preventable. And there seems to be a clear link between carer and campaigner. So the mere fact that you were somebody who cared for your brother before, and then when this happened, you then became a campaigner for him. It's something I can relate to because I was my mum's carer after she was shot and then became the voice for her when she passed and there was an inquest into her death and I think there's something about the kind of closeness that you and the bond and that kind of empathy that you then build for that person 
when you play that role. And so therefore, when it comes to campaigning, you fight just that bit harder because you know that person intricately and you know they didn't deserve to die in the way that they did. Yeah, that's really true. I think when that happens, because some people say, oh, you're really strong, but I don't really see myself as strong. You know, you choose between dying and living. You can choose to die or you can choose to live. But by living, I feel like the only way I can live is by campaigning, by trying to make a difference. Because if I don't do it, you know, and loads of other people don't do it, because I think one of the things that comes out is that, you know, prison, died in prison. Some people are ashamed of it because, you know, people will talk, people will say that. But you know what? I don't care what people will say because they don't know the truth. They don't know everything. I have to say something for them to know. Because if we all keep our mouths shut, no one else is going to know anything. No one's going to know what's going on. And it's one of the reasons why I chose to go public. It's not that the Ministry of Justice released information to say this person had died. I just chose to go public to say that my brother had died in prison. He was disabled and he was being discriminated against. This happened, that happened. I want to find out what happened to my brother. And you know what? I didn't actually get any negative publicity, I feel. People were actually interested to know what happened. And maybe if we spoke out a bit more, people would understand a bit more. I just want to touch on that point you made, Dita, about discrimination, because I think that's something really important to acknowledge in terms of Liridan's disability, but also in terms of joint enterprise. What we know is that a recent report came out and revealed that more than half of the people who are prosecuted under the joint enterprise doctrine come from black and minority ethnicities. And you're much more likely to end up being sent to prison for a crime that you haven't committed in that way, if you are a person of colour, basically. And I just wanted to acknowledge that and get your reflections. I mean, the statistics speak for themselves, you know, it's quite interesting interesting to see that out. If they'd recorded everything, I bet it's probably even worse if they had more of the information because I don't know the exact details of how this was pulled together. But I would not be shocked if this was worse. And yeah, maybe if Luridan was a white English boy, the chances of him being charged might have not been as, as big. Maybe. I, I can't answer that. I can assume. But hearing from loads of people who've got loved ones in prison under joint enterprise, seeing the statistics, these are all facts based on that. That's all I can make my opinion on. Yeah, I think that's really important just to acknowledge that. And also Liridan was one of 12 people to die in Belmarsh itself in the past five years. Four of those deaths were self-inflicted. But we know he's also one of hundreds of people to die in prison every year. And that continues. Through your campaigning, you've met other families and other family campaigners who have been doing this recently and also for many years. How has that felt meeting other families along the way and kind of joining together through inquest? to campaign? I think for me, it's given me strength to do this. Seeing them do it makes me want to fight with them as well. It does give you a lot of strength. It's difficult because before the inquest, as they take years, I used to think, what what's going to happen after it? What am I going to be like? Because to be honest, I don't think there's been a moment where I've properly dealt with the loss of my brother because I've been dealing with that court process, dealing with the campaigning and lots of things that I didn't have the time to do that. But then to see people, to meet people that have actually been through the inquest gives me hope that, you know, maybe there is something in life worth living for and which has been really difficult because I think when I used to care for Luridan um, after the accident, you know, I cared for him and you could see him getting better. Whereas this situation when he died, you know, that's the worst thing that could happen. And 
you know, I've I've lost a big, big part of me and I've also lost all the dreams in my life and what I want to do to do with my life. So, you know, you lose hope in life yourself. It's, you know, you go through depression and everything. And at the same time, you're trying to make a difference so that somebody else isn't suffering the same way. But meeting families like that just gives you hope and it just, it really, really, really does help because it makes you see that you should continue living and that you can make a difference in the world. I don't know if you wanted to reflect on that, Lee, as someone who's been campaigning for how many years? Too many. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll say for me in the immediate aftermath when my mum was shot, we went into survival mode. So for many years, it was just like, we've got to survive. We've got to find a way to kind of just live and support my mum. And for her, it was about trying to do the best that she could in the situation that she was in, being paralysed in a wheelchair as a result of that. And it was only when she passed in 2011, well, there was a strong desire, I will say, to step up and say, there's no way my mum's going out like that. There's no way that what happened to her is just going to be seen as some accident. You know, the truth needs to be known and it needs to be a public record that it wasn't. I was there, I saw it for myself. So then there was that whole campaigning and it was hard. I think if I was to reflect back, it's probably one of the most difficult times, challenging times of my life. But also it allowed me to learn so much about myself as well and what's possible. And would you say, you know, in campaigning, what did you learn about yourself through that process, if anything? I think I was always seen as the strong one in the family, but... Sometimes I've, I shock myself to where I am now, like, you know, mentally, because I just didn't think I was going to get through it. I didn't think I would be possible to do some of the things I did. So I have surprised myself in some way. And I start to think about some of the things that Lyridan used to say about me, that I'm quite tough. So she's only tough because we made her tough, you know, growing up with three brothers. <laughs> and yeah, I start to think about some of the things he said. He used to talk to me a lot about me. <laughs> he really adored me. Like he just thought I was perfect in his view. And um, it's crazy that, you know, to have someone like that in your life that thinks that about you. Because, you know, there's loads of people that have siblings, some don't get on with them, don't have strong relationships with them. And But with him, it was just, I don't know, I did quite a lot for him, but he gave me a lot back because he just gave me the love that a brother would give and the support and motivation. And he's the actually person who would always push me to be quite ambitious and everything and told me I was so amazing. And he used to, he used to just refer to me as the goody-goody. She's <laughs> the goody-goody. That's beautiful. And I just want to take the opportunity to commend you. I know, as I said to you from experience, how difficult that journey is, you know, but you found the will, you found the determination. I know the love for your brother is something that also spurred you on. But at the same time, it's not an easy road to go down And I just want to commend you on doing all what you've done for your brother and what you're continuing to do in advocating for others. And I just want to ask a question around the process and how you feel after going through the inquest, getting the outcome. Do you feel like you got any sense of justice? No, not I wouldn't say justice. I would say that I got the truth out to a certain extent. I wouldn't say I got justice because I'm not saying I want other people to die. I don't agree with paying death by death as in like you know death sentence and stuff like that I don't believe in stuff like that I don't want to have the views that other people have about how you deal with certain things I want them to acknowledge them I want them to come and speak to me I want them to tell me they were sorry I want something to happen maybe yeah maybe criminal charges because what they did I'm sure it was illegal 
But, you know, because of their roles, job titles, they get protected by the law. And that's not fair. It's not fair. Because if I did something at work that was wrong, I'd have to be held responsible. So you're talking about prison staff, the prison itself and the Ministry of Justice. Total level, top to bottom. They need to be held to account. They need to, because you know what? Nothing will change until they are held accountable. And if they are held accountable, I guarantee you other people would start doing their jobs properly. And, you know, yeah, some of the issues are training issues, but the other problem is compassion, lack of compassion. There's some people that should not be in those roles because they do not have compassion and you cannot teach someone compassion. But something that did come up the inquest, which I think is really important, is that the coroner was able to make recommendations as part of a prevention of future deaths report, which means that there's a direct recommendation for what the prison service itself and Belmarsh itself need to change. How did that feel for you and what were those recommendations? Recommendations were about finding out who should be making these reasonable adjustments for an orthopaedic mattress because they still don't seem to be clear on who's responsible. The prison staff blame, Oxley's, Oxley's blame, social care, social care aren't responsible for this. It's It's the prison's responsibility. They are responsible for the regime and what happens within their walls. They've just ignored this prevention of future death report from the coroners, came back with a couple of paragraphs which didn't even make sense. Our legal team wrote back to the coroner who the coroner agreed that this doesn't mean anything this doesn't say that you you've made the changes or how you've made the changes and they've just ignored the coroner so you know that is proof that they don't care that's a coroner that's made that recommendation it was an eight-day inquest you know lots of witnesses and a lot of money spent in the end for them not to take these uh, recommendations and make a change it's just it's a slap in the face yeah he died we don't care (laughs) we're gonna let it happen again So in some ways, it feels like, although you got the truth from these processes, you still haven't got justice. You still haven't got accountability. And where you're putting your energy now is into joining alongside other families and coming together to campaign against the harms of imprisonment, which is a huge campaign and something that you're doing amazingly. And I also just wanted to highlight, we've heard so much amazing fighting talk from you, but also in everything that you say I can hear so much love and I can hear Liridan standing behind you and just feel that warmth and I just wanted to end by asking you can you tell us a bit more about Liridan and who he was as a person? Yeah it's really hard talking about this part I mean it's things that they said at the inquest as well you know those members of staff that were there he was always quite approachable friendly always said please and thank you he said he always greeted people with a hug the doctor said he wouldn't usually hug people but with Luridan it just felt natural because he just hugged me so he said every time I saw him you know we hugged he was quite caring he trusted people a lot which I think was one of his downsides because in the world we live in these days you can't really trust people much and he was quite a direct person he wasn't someone that lied he was direct he told you the way things were he wasn't rude but he would tell you um which yeah again is one of the things in the world where being honest um doesn't seem to work in your favor he was such an amazing brother because he was always there for me my phone would always ring i'd always know what he was doing where he was going we were just really close he he was close to my other two brothers as well specifically also his little brother he was really close to to the point where when they were little they used to like fight and then my parents would separate them but they wouldn't have that because they always wanted to be together so they got super glue and super glued their hands together and said they can't separate us now 
<laughs> took hours to get that off and yeah he was just great and he was also like a really really great uncle to our older brother's kids they just loved it when he was about he would show them how to box <laughs> so they still do that and they say uncle Lyridan taught us how to box he was just funny he was really funny but he always knew his limits like he could have a really really deep conversation with you which was amazing thank you for sharing that and i think it's so important for the people listening to be able to understand and hear from you about Liridan as a person because so many times when our loved ones die in the way that they do or are taken away from us in the way that they are in these cases they're seen as like a subject and they speak about them in a way like this was just a person who died in prison but this person meant more than that to you and I felt the same way with my mum. She was always known as this woman who was shot by the police back in 1985. That sparked the Brixton uprisings. But she was much more than that. And it was so important for me to be able to allow people to see that as well so that they connect to the human aspect of the story. And when they understand who that person was, then they can understand why it's such a loss to us. So thank you very much for sharing that. Thank you so much. And thank you to for you for sharing about your mother. It's great to see someone like you in front of me. You've been campaigning for a lot longer than I have, been doing a lot more, so it just gives me a lot of hope that, you know, I can continue this and hopefully make a change. And you give me hope too. Thank you. How does it feel listening back to that? Just brings you back to the moment, right? And I think my response to it was really, I suppose, connecting with what she was saying in terms of speaking about her brother, allowing us to know him through her and identifying how important it is to be able to do that as someone who's campaigning or fighting for justice for your loved one. It's always at the forefront of your mind to want to be able to do that. And I think it forms a massive part of the campaign too, to bring that person alive and to the forefront so that people connect to the fact that you know wow this was someone and it was unfair and it should have never happened and we shouldn't be allowing the system to get away with treating us like this so yeah it was humbling and i loved the way that she was able to tell her story and speak about it in such a passionate way so although you heard the light and shade in her in that conversation where you heard her those happier moments where she thought about those joyful times that she spent with her brother and some of the things that he did and you know she had a little giggle about that so you really connect to what life was like before and the joy as well as connecting to the loss the deep loss and the pain and the trauma that comes with that too and i felt listening to that and being in the room with both of you it really struck me how much you had in common. Like what happened was so different to her brother and to your mom and your experiences, you know, took place many years apart. But actually you had so much in common. And I felt that. And I suppose that's the great thing about the podcast as well is that although these things can happen in silo, you're going through these things, it's, it's happening to you. It's your own unique experience. But there's something about when you meet other people who have gone through similar things as a instant connection or bond and a level of empathy that you kind of exchange in that moment that it's hard to put into words it's just a feeling it's an energy there was something that she said though that listening back really caught my ears that i don't think we really addressed it 
in the moment. And I wonder what you think about this, which is she sort of briefly mentioned that through this campaigning and through going through the legal processes, she was really focused on challenging the failures in prison and getting to the answers. And she sort of in passing said, that as part of that, she feels maybe she hasn't really dealt with her grief. And actually hearing that, I thought that that is a huge point. And it's a huge thing that I think comes up for a lot of the families that we work with, particularly the families who go to campaigning and go to the fight for justice as part of their response to this huge loss and huge change in their lives and within the grief. And I wondered what you think about that moment and about that reflection from Dita. It triggered something inside me and it triggered a question because I think it's easy for people to look at me and think with what I managed to achieve with the support of my family around the acknowledgement of what happened to my mum and some level of accountability that came in the form of restorative justice and the work that I continue to do now that I got a sense of justice out of the situation. So I'm kind of on the other side. But you could also look at it that for me to continue doing what I'm doing, is that a sign that I'm not healed? And is that a sign that this thing is never ending because you can't bring back your loved one? So you finding something more to do and keeping yourself busy is the thing that keeps you going. And maybe the day you stop is the day that you're kind of left with that stark reality of what happened to your loved one, the fact that they're never coming back and the fact that no matter what you do, you may help others, but you can't undo what's been done. But there was this other dynamic, right, that came up, which was that in life, you, for your mum and Dita, for her brother, had a role as a kind of very active carer role. And that's something I see with loads of the families that we work with. Often when somebody's died, the relative who ends up being the one at the forefront of the fight for change in the long term, when that person was alive, it that person's care or that person's support was a huge part of that family member's life. And you kind of also see that you can't imagine some of these family members not doing what they're doing. There is a simplex thing that you could say where it's like, oh, it's all about grief and you're avoiding your grief. But actually, you know, there's something about that, like carer to campaigner dynamic where you think, actually, is there something about like your role and your position in life is about that care, whether that person is in life or in death? That's a good point that you raised because, you know, people say, oh, is it what you've gone through that makes you who you are? Or is it fundamentally who you are that shapes how you respond to things? And I prefer to kind of go with the latter. So if we look at it like that, you could almost say, OK, maybe no one could fight as hard as you because you was maybe that connected to that person in a different way. It doesn't mean that anyone else is less important, right? But sometimes we've all got a role and a purpose and you can decide to step into that role or you can decide to run away from it. And what I will say as a positive is that you do discover a lot about yourself in the struggle, your strengths and things that you may have taken for granted that now you realise that when you're applying it for this purpose, that it has huge benefits and that's transferable. And that's why I think people then tend to go on to do more work and try to help others because they realise that there's a lot more that can be done. We've been talking a lot about care and kind of reflecting on the love and care that drives families and drives people. But we're also talking about prisons. And in a way, prisons are the opposite of a caring environment, a loving environment. 
They take people away from their families, away from the people that care about them. And they don't actually address any of the harms that happen in society. They further perpetuate harm on the people that end up in them. Totally agree. Hostile, sterile, harsh environments to be in. Around one person every day dies in prison in England and Wales. That is unacceptable. And Liridan's story reminds us that there's so much more that needs to be done to create transformative change. In the next two episodes, we'll be looking at people dying in our mental health system. You know, when I got the news that he'd been killed, it had a massive, profound effect on me. Because when you're family, no matter how much time passes, you're still family. And the impact is still the same because you, it's not just about losing Mike. It was about what I saw it was doing to my auntie and his brothers and sisters. The grief and the pain it was causing them energised me to do more. We know that this is a really difficult episode. If you've been affected by any of the themes that have come up, please go to the links in the episode notes. If you think other people would like Unlawful Killing, then please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and feedback really help others discover the show. If you have a story to share, get in touch via communications at inquest.org.uk or on social media. We'd also like to pay tribute to the thousands of bereaved families who have worked alongside Inquest. Thank you to each and every one of you who have created powerful legacies for your loved ones and contribute to important changes which protect all of us. Unlawful Killing is made in partnership with Inquest and Aunt Nell, presented by me, Lucy Brisbane, and Lee Lawrence, produced by Leila Hagman and Naomi Oppenheim. Consultant producers Tash Walker and Adam Smith. The music in this podcast is by Dave Okumu. This podcast is part funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We're grateful that this podcast series is supported by Hodge, Jones & Allen, a key law firm in the fight for what's right. Their lawyers help people right wrongs, fight injustice and defend people's rights. Inquest have worked with Hodge, Jones & Allen on countless cases from the Marchioness disaster of 1989 to the ongoing Essex Mental Health Inquiry. Thanks also to the students from the Centre for Social Justice Research at the University of Westminster who helped with the research for the podcast. We'd also like to thank Dita Saliuka for speaking to us. You can find out more about the campaign against joint enterprise through the organisation Jengba. Their details are in the show notes. <laughs>